WHMP. Welcome to the show. We'll be joined in just a moment by Carrie Blackinger. Blakinger. She is the author of a new book, Corrections in Ink. First, we want to tell you that we will, in fact, have a fish wrap for you today because so much went on yesterday, including the FBI execution of a warrant at Mar-a-Lago. Donald Trump had some complaints and the passing of David McCullough and Olivia Newton-John and any number of other matters in the news that we do want to cover. But we do want to have the time to speak to speak with uh, Carrie uh, Blakinger. She has a new book, Corrections in Ink. She is an investigative reporter in Texas and covers criminal justice and injustice for the Marshall Project. So, Carrie, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for this book. Um, authors hate the question, tell me about your book, or why did you want to write this book, or any other variations on that theme. But your book is a memoir, and it is a memoir significantly about being in prison and being in jail. So at the risk of asking the question that authors hate, um, I, I wish you would spend a couple minutes and tell us the arc of your life and this book, um, because it does set the stage for the questions I really do want to ask you. Carrie? Um, I continue to be bad at this elevator pitch version of things, but um, here is the, here's the best I can do. So. I grew up as a competitive figure skater and I skated pairs, which is where the guy, you know, throws you around and it looks all dangerous. And then when my skating career fell apart when I was about 17, um, I fell apart. And I, um, I'm sure we can dive into more of the whys of that later, but I very quickly dove into drugs and was before long homeless and doing sex work and addicted to heroin. and. That's more or less what I did off and on for the next nine years. Um, at the same time, I started sort of bumbling my way through college at some point. And eventually at 26, I got arrested um, with a decent amount of heroin during what should have been my final semester at Cornell University. And then I went to prison for a little under two years. And when I got out, I eventually went on to become a reporter who covers primarily prisons. For the Marshall Project. And you've also written for the Houston Chronicle. You've had pieces in the New York Times and the Washington Post and any number of other publications as well. So here's, here's the question that I really want to ask you. What, what do, does your experience in prison and in jail tell us and a bigger picture about how corrections fails in the United States? Well, I mean, I think that one of the takeaways is how little rehabilitation actually occurs there. I mean, I think on the balance, when you look at my descriptions of jail and prison, you see a lot of unnecessarily traumatizing treatment and a lot of treatment that is just counterproductive even when it's not traumatizing per se and you don't see a lot of rehabilitation and I think that people understand all those things in sort of general terms like these are things that you might hear people talking about I don't know on the news or see it on Twitter or whatever but I think when you actually read it cover to cover and sort of see one person's set of experiences all lined up like that it's um, it's much more striking um, in, enough so, in fact, that when I wrote the book and looked back at it, I was sort of surprised at how my experiences all stacked up together because 
normally I think of these things in sort of discreet anecdotes and stories that you tell people at parties or bars or whatever. And I hadn't really considered them all together like that. And when I sort of stacked them all up and looked back at them afterwards, I was like, wow, this is actually worse and a lot more stark than I allow myself to remember on a sort of daily basis. Was it hard to write a book this honest? Um, a little bit. I mean, I had some practice. I'd written some essays before. Um, I'd written some first-person things. Like, like I had some experience with that, um, and I had some sense of how these things are typically received and what readers want more of and what resonates. Um, but, you know, doing it on this scale, you know, you don't get that sort of incremental feedback along the way that you would with a series of essays. So that's that's definitely different. Um, although I will say that having had an arrest that was pretty publicly covered, I'd already been, um, you know, I, I mean, my mugshot is the worst picture that exists of me. And that had already been on national news, um, you know, so. Well, it's, I, it's, I mean, it, was I, nas- I, it was national news because uh, Cornell students don't usually get uh, picked up with a, uh, a great deal of heroin in a suitcase. That was that wasn't. It was not a suitcase. Oh, my God. You're yeah. way overstating things. Just to be clear, I did not have a suitcase of drugs. <laughs> I would probably be doing I would probably be. Yeah, still suitcase. Suitcase was the wrong one, but a, a bag, a, a, a bushel. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it was um, it was a Tupperware container of heroin. Container, um, right? I'm sorry, it was not. Yeah, it was not it, a, it was it was a not container, a, right? Not like a, not like a large container. Like you're not getting your whole dinner leftovers in there. Maybe maybe a side. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I I I'm sorry. I read that part of your book a while ago. I misremembered that. <laughs> but it was a lot of heroin, enough to uh, at least in previous uh, incarnations under the Rockefeller laws would have sent you away to prison for a long, long time. Yeah, I mean, the, the this is true. One of the, uh, you know, I was arrested in New York, which was home to the notoriously draconian Rockefeller drug laws, which uh, came into play in the 70s. And they were some of the first um, mandatory minimum laws in the country. And a lot of other states later followed suit. And this is sort of why the, you know, one of the big factors and why the drug war ended up playing out the way it did. But the New York law, one piece of it was that if you had four more ounces of heroin, or of actually any hard drug, um, your sentence would be 15 to life. Um, and I had six ounces. And, um, you know, the, the for some perspective, uh, the retail value of that, I guess, was somewhere around like $30,000. Now, the police said at the time of my arrest that it was 150000 which was, I mean, police are known to exaggerate these numbers, and that was simply inaccurate. And the next day, they corrected it and said 50, but the reality is around 30, probably. So... You know, we're not talking like kingpin numbers, but like, yeah, that's a decent amount of of drugs. Um, And under the old law, that would have been enough for 15 to life. They started repealing Rockefeller, however, around 2004, and then they finished repealing in 2009, and I got arrested in 2010. So um, I was incredibly lucky because if I'd been arrested a few years earlier, I would still be in prison and not eligible for parole yet. So, uh, Carrie Blakinger... Here's one irony of, of your story that, that I really would like to ask you about. Your life had fallen apart uh, for reasons you explain and are very honest about. Uh, you go to jail. You go to prison. You spend a couple of years behind the razor wire. 
you manage to get sober um, and you come out on the other end and you become a reporter and a very successful reporter and a successful author. And I'm wondering whether there is in your mind, notwithstanding the horrors and trauma of prison, whether there's something weird about the idea that that experience stopped you from this destructive path that you were on. And I'm wondering if um, you have some thoughts about that that you'd care to share. Um, I mean, I, I think that, I, I, I don't agree with that actually. I don't, I don't think that prison you know, saved my life or whatever. Um, I know that some people feel that way about their prison experiences. I think that personally I was at a point where I was ready to make a change and there are any number of far less destructive um, catalytic events that could have sort of changed the course of where I was headed, simply even just graduating and leaving town. I think on the other hand, if I'd gotten arrested a year earlier, I would not have gotten sober because, you know, like I said some in the book, I mean, I could get heroin delivered to my bedside in prison. People think that sending someone to prison is in some way going to help them like get off of drugs, but there are tons of drugs in prison. And people, I think, often forget that. So when people get sober or change directions in prison, it is not because of prison. It's, it's despite in prison. Spite of prison. Yeah. L let me ask you this. How did you get sober? How did, how did you do that? I mean, is, is that, uh, you, you had no help. You had no assistance. You had no support. There were drugs everywhere. And you managed to get sober. How? So I was lucky in that at that point, the jail that I was in gave people Suboxone, which is a medication-assisted treatment that is used to um, you know, help people detox. And when it's used in the long term, it's also used to help people avoid relapse and you know, stay off of heroin. I did not get it long term. I got it for short-term detox. But I think that made a huge difference because it meant that in the first few days after my arrest, I was not trying to get more drugs. I could just focus on... Um, what the next decisions I was going to make were, like what I was going to do with my life and um, how I planned to move forward. So I think that was really helpful. Um, I think that, you know, like I, like I sort of implied before, I'd gotten to a point where I was just really sick of the direction that my life was going. And I'd also gotten to around a point where people statistically tend to age out of crime and criminal behavior anyway. So I think I was more or less getting to a point where I was tired of it. And there were a few moments in those first few months in jail that really were, I don't know, I guess what you would call moments of clarity where I realized that this was definitely the sort of change I wanted to make in my life. So I think all of that came together and helped. And, you know, then when I got out, I think one of the things that's been hugely helpful has been, um, you know, finding something that I am passionate about um, reporting, you know, criminal justice reporting, something that can um, fill the hole in my life that I had filled with heroin. We are speaking with Carrie Blakinger. Her new book is titled Corrections in Ink. It is a memoir. What was the worst part of jail or prison? Wow, that's a hard one. Um, I think, I mean, there's a lot of things that are in the running for that, but um, I think the constant fear of being put in solitary for completely arbitrary reasons. Um, one of the things you learn in, in jail and prison, I, I mean, if you don't already know it, is that, uh, you know, that, that the rules are meaningless. There's, there's no rules and none of it matters. Um, 
and what I mean by that is that, you know, you can just as easily go to solitary for punching someone as for doing literally nothing, just sitting in your cell. If, you know, the guards decide that they think you've done something or if someone else accuses you of doing something or if someone's just having a bad day or if you get caught with too many stamps or an extra towel or any of these things, um, you can end up going to solitary. And, um, you know, I, I one time I went to solitary because I was wrongfully accused of having drugs, which I didn't, um, but they refused to drug test me. And, um, you know, to be able to show that I was not doing drugs. And, you know, I think that this sort of creates this fear that you can just sort of be whisked off to solitary at any point because there's uh, no due process and it feels like there's no rules. And I think that actually has the very counter, teaches a very counterproductive lesson that, you know, it doesn't matter if you follow the rules or not because you're likely to get punished either way. We're speaking with Carrie Bloikinger. Her new book is Corrections in Ink, a memoir. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. In a couple of hours or less, you can be at the beach, toes in the sand, bouncing in the waves, which means fresh just off the boat seafood is only a couple of hours away or minutes away at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, where the seafood is delivered direct from the fishing boats. Cod, salmon, scallops, no warehousing. It goes from the dock to the kitchen door. Try Paul and Elizabeth's fish and chips with that lighter than air tempura batter. Try the scallops broiled with garlic butter and fresh herbs. There's no beach at Paul and Elizabeth's, but the seafood? 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance, in partnership with Arbella Insurance. 
Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Carrie Blakinger. Her new memoir, Corrections in Ink, has gotten a lot of, and deservedly, a lot of press and a lot of media attention because it is so moving and so telling. I was just struck, Carrie, by your answer to the question, the worst part of prison or jail, the arbitrariness the, in which you can just be sent to the hole, sent to solitary, no due process, no process, just the arbitrariness of a guard deciding that the guard wants you in that place. You tell a number of stories in, in, in this memoir, um, uh, many of which, to me, were just horrifying one after the next. And yet you made relationships in, 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 in prison and jail that were significant and are significant in your life. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Um, there's, a, there's a number of the women that I was... Uh, that I was on the inside with that I still keep in touch with, um, you know, and it's, it's funny because I think that, you know, when I think of some of the other people that I've known for relatively similar periods of time, it's just not that same kind of bond. I mean, there are some women that I was only maybe housed near for a month or two, um, but it's still a really deep bond because you have this very specific shared trauma um, and now, even 10 years later, when we talk, we pick up right where we were in a way that I don't often find with other people. One aspect of your memoir, Corrections in Ink, that I was struck by, it's not a theme of the book, but incidents keep coming up throughout the story having to do with the lack of medical care in jail and prison. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, as a reporter, this is something that I end up reporting on a lot now. Um, I mean, you know, on the one hand, like the reality of it is we have so many people incarcerated in this country that it is not surprising that we don't pay for an adequate and often not even a constitutional uh, minimum level of medical care. And, you know, what that means can vary a lot. Um, it can mean things like, you know, people don't get treatment for hepatitis C. Um, I had to fight for that for a while when I was trying to get treated for hep C. Um, but it's something that's been enough of a persistent problem that several states have had lawsuits over it. And, um, you know, prisoners have won in multiple states. Um, also, just getting basic dental care was difficult. Um, I had a really hard time getting um, some fillings dealt with. I had like half a tooth fall out, and that was um, that that was incredibly difficult. They wouldn't um, they didn't want to take me to a dentist because it would have cost one hundred and fifty dollars. Um, so that's the sort of the the level of expenditure that they're willing to deal with or not. Um, but I think one of the more egregious examples of medical care that is in that book is after I get out when I'm covering prisons and I'm writing about Texas prisons and I'm, you know, as a reporter. And at one point I learned that Texas prisoners do not get dentures. If they don't have teeth and they can't chew, 
um, they don't give them dentures, which is so shocking to me because in New York, if you didn't have teeth, you would get dentures. And it didn't occur to me that there were other states that would just deny prisoners an entire body part. Um, but Texas did, and instead what they would do is take a mess hall tray, throw it in a blender, puree it, and pour it in a cup and serve it to people that way. And when I found out about that, I spent 11 months investigating it and trying to find um, examples of it and trying to get data and two decades of policies to prove what had changed and what hadn't changed. And in the end, when I wrote a story, it irked one particular state senator, um, John Whitmire, and he pressured the prison system to do better and to make some changes. And one of the changes they made was to buy a 3D printer and become the first um, prison system to start 3D printing dentures on site. Now, that was in 2018-19, and um, a few years later, you know, they are still printing dentures, but um, the policy that they have in place now means that they've, you know, given several hundred people dentures, but they still, there are still hundreds more who don't have dentures. So um, it's, you know, it's an improvement and there are, you know, hundreds of people who have teeth because of my reporting, but there are still, you know, there's still the reality of that even with one step forward, that is absolutely nowhere near enough to meet the need. You, you talk about the arbitrariness. You don't, you don't talk about it, you just describe it. I mean, the, the book is extremely moving and really upsetting in a lot of ways, inspiring too. I, 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 Thank I, you. I, I, I'd like to know a little bit more about something you talk about, which is uh, when, a, when a person inside has a date to get out, um, it's getting short in prison lingo, you're, you're close to getting out, that things can happen and happen intentionally to stop that from occurring, from stop you from getting out. And I think that would be surprising or is surprising to a lot of people. Can you describe what happens, how that happens? Yeah, we um, we had, you know, we called it somebody trying to take your date. Um, one of the things I was warned when I came into prison was that you should not let anyone know when your out date was because if they, you know, were mad at you, if they wanted to get revenge for whatever reason, um, they could sort of weaponize the arbitrariness of the rules to make sure that you didn't get out when you were supposed to. Meaning that, you know, if you just walked up to someone on the walkway and punched them in the face, that would be considered a fight. And both parties involved could get in trouble, even if the staff could see that one person just completely got punched with no warning in the middle of the walkway. So, um, you know, people, there was always the threat that someone could do something to take your date. I mean, that wasn't that wasn't going to happen just anyway. You know, they weren't going to do that at random out of spite. I mean, I want to be clear: prisoners are not just you know horrible, spiteful people or whatever. But you know, if you um, you know if if you were involved in if you were involved in a certain kind of drama with the wrong people and you were just getting involved and stuff, um, that was a, a real threat to watch out for. Um, and I wonder if you could stay with us for one more minute. I know you have to run, but I'd love to know if you have the time um, about how you survived and how people survive something that has to be just an unbelievable insult to emotional and mental health, which is being inside and locked up like that without mental health assistance, without emotional support like that. Could you leave us with a last thought about that? 
You know, I mean, I don't know. I survived because I'm still alive. That's it. You know, I feel like um, there's nothing about prison that makes you stronger, or for me anyways. Um, you know, it just adds more trauma. And, um, I mean, I think overall it's been, you know, it's, it's just been another mental health hurdle in and of itself. Um, I have, at the same time, gotten better at dealing with some of those hurdles and I have better coping mechanisms than heroin, for instance. But again, that's not because of prison. That's in spite of prison. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Carrie, uh, uh, Carrie Blakinger. Her new book is titled Corrections in Ink, a memoir. Oh, Carrie, tell us this mm -hmm. just before we go. The title, where does it come from? Um, brainstorming with my best friend. <laughs> Um, I, uh, you know, I, I made some references in there to the fact that we didn't have pencils in the county jail, so everything was in pen. So I'd be writing things and, you know, making corrections in ink. Um, and, you know, I was talking it over with my best friend during the pandemic, and she suggested corrections in ink as the title. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. It sounds kind of like a tattoo memoir. So I joked that I was just going to have to spend enough of the book money on tattoos that the title would fit, which um, I know this is radio, so your listeners can't see. But trust me, I've spent a lot of that book, book money on tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> which we can see on Skype. But the end of the book uses that phrase. What, do you, what does it mean there? Um, well, I mean, honestly, people should just read it. <laughs> okay, I'll leave it there, and we should leave it there. Listen, it's a really, really moving and important memoir. Uh, the title is Corrections in Ink. Uh, Carrie Blakinger, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your book. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Get in on the conversation. Call 413-586-7140. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Renovation plans for the former St. John Cantius Church will move forward after the Northampton Historical Commission voted to allocate $500,000 in Community Preservation Act funding. At first, owner O'Connell Development said they had plans to preserve the church building and put townhomes around it. But in 2021, O'Connell said COVID made that plan uneconomical and it filed a still pending application to demolish the church. The community rallied around the church and O'Connell came back asking for the $500,000 as part of a $4.6 million plan to build about 10 residences in the church. The application now goes on to the fall meeting of the Northampton Community Preservation Committee and eventually the city council. The Hampshire Regional YMCA is receiving $5,000 from Bank ESB to help fund the wellness program and family services in Hampshire County. These funds were made as part of the bank's charitable giving program, The Giving Tree. Bank ESB donated a total of $20,000 over the past two years to provide scholarships to camp, child care, and other programs for those in need. Low water levels on the Connecticut River could pose problems for boaters and swimmers looking for relief from the ongoing drought and heat wave. Extra caution is needed to not hit rocks, trees, or sandbars that are usually underwater. Bacteria levels can also increase in shallower, warmer water. At this time last year, Massachusetts was having an unseasonably wet summer, but this year the western half of the state is experiencing a moderate drought.
Hot and humid mix of sun and clouds today, a high of 90 to 94. Some early to mid-afternoon thunderstorms, some could be strong to severe. There may be a lingering evening shower, otherwise it's mostly cloudy, an overnight low of 62 to 68. Cooler tomorrow, mixture of sun and clouds, chance for a scattered shower, 80 to 84. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Reshivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El gobierno federal presentó cargos de derechos civiles el jueves contra cuatro policías de Louisville por la redada antidrogas que condujo a la muerte de Breonna Taylor, una mujer negra cuyo tiroteo fatal ayudó a impulsar las protestas por la justicia racial que sacudieron a la nación en 2020. Los cargos, la mayoría de los cuales se derivan de la orden judicial de drogas defectuosa utilizada para registrar la casa de Taylor, son un esfuerzo para responsabilizar a las fuerzas del orden público por el asesinato de la trabajadora médica de 26 años. Uno de los oficiales fue absuelto de cargos estatales a principios de este año. Breonna Taylor debería estar viva hoy, dijo el fiscal general Mary Garland al anunciar los cargos que incluyen conspiración ilícita, uso de la fuerza y obstrucción de la justicia. Los cargos nombraron a los exoficiales Joshua James y Brett Hankison, junto con los oficiales actuales Kelly Goodlett y el sargento Kyle Meany. La policía de Louisville dijo que busca despedir a Goodlett y Meany. Hankison fue el único oficial acusado el jueves que estuvo en la escena la noche del asesinato. Hankison, James James y Minnie tuvieron comparecencias iniciales el jueves en un tribunal federal. Los tres hombres enfrentan una sentencia máxima de cadena perpetua por los cargos de derechos civiles. Por su parte, activistas locales y miembros de la familia de Taylor celebraron los cargos y agradecieron a los funcionarios federales. En otras informaciones, el gobierno federal declaró una emergencia de salud pública el jueves para reforzar la respuesta al brote de viruela del mono que ha infectado a más de 6,600 estadounidenses. El anuncio liberará dinero y otros recursos para combatir el virus que puede causar fiebre, dolores corporales, escalofríos, fatiga y bultos parecidos a granos en muchas partes del cuerpo. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Talking Baseball with the Duke. Duke Goldman, Northampton-based member of Sabre, the Society of American Baseball Research, a baseball historian. He is with us every month. Talking Baseball with the Duke, one of my favorite segments on the show. So, Duke, the baseball deadline, the trade deadline has come and gone, and a lot happened. And here's one of our disagreements, so let's start there. You've been critical of Major League Baseball for taking away some of the history of the game in terms of how the playoffs are set up. But I look at the standings and, you know, 10 out of 15 teams in the American League and close to that in the National are, well, in contention for playoff spots. It's all very exciting and a lot of teams traded so that they could win the playoffs. So comment on that for us and let us know what the teams did. Uh, I'll continue to disagree with you on that. Uh, I think it, 
the excitement would have still been there if they didn't add two more teams. You know, I'm not saying they should go back to having, you know, uh, two teams, one in each league in the playoffs. I understand they need rounds of playoffs, but they could have left it where it was. And my fear is also that they're going to move towards the NHL model because, you know, they're, they, they actually wanted even two more than they're going to have this year. They, you, and I would think that's ridiculous. You don't, you know, it's, it's, this, is, this is not everyone gets a participation trophy. Right. And then you're, you're in danger of having something like, well, let's say the Red Sox making the playoffs, you know, just to throw something in there that people <laughs> in the audience may not like. But you know what? I do think I'll, – I'll tell you two things. One thing I said a month ago was completely wrong, and the other thing I said was completely right. So we'll start with what I did wrong. I said the Yankees are going to set an all-time record for wins in a season, and now we know uh, – no, they're not. They've gone 10 and 16 in their last 26 games. They've lost several key players, and they made an inexplicable trade, which we'll get into in a little while. Um, but the Red Sox were were surging, I think, last time we, I was on, and you were saying, hey, they look, they look like uh, real contenders. Who knows how they're going to do? And I said... You know, they weren't, they're not nearly as bad as they looked at the beginning of the year when they were far below 500, and they're not nearly as good as they look now when they're winning. And now what do we see? They're back slightly below 500. Yes, they're on the fringe of the playoffs, part of which is because there's so many teams that are in contention because of all the slots, but they're not good. Um, and they, they don't look good. And even if they make the playoffs, the way they've set it up now, the wild cards uh, will have to play uh, a three of five series where they play three games on the road. And the Red Sox don't have starting pitching to speak of. Uh, it, their ace is Nate Ivaldi, who's okay, but he's he's no uh, Max Scherzer or Jacob deGrom or Tony Gonsolin or, or any number of top-notch pitchers. Justin Verlander, you know, I can give you 20 people. Garrett Cole... You know, they have nobody. They're going nowhere, even if they sneak into the playoffs. All right, go back to what you just said about the Yankees having made an inexplicable trade. The Yankees, before last night's game, had lost 18 of their last 30 games. Their pitching has been really mediocre uh, at best in the last uh, 30 games, 31 games. Uh, they've had serious injuries, uh, uh, having lost two of their best uh, hitters, and a couple of their other starting members of their starting lineup have been batting like zero or .50. What has happened to the Yankees? Well, they lost uh, Luis Severino, um, who was a good pitcher for them. And so they replaced him with Frankie Montas, who had a terrible outing, but, you know, he came in, um, I think, from Oakland. And one outing does not mean he's not going to be good for them. Having said that, they also made a trade. They traded one of the members of their starting rotation, Jordan Montgomery. And who I really liked and who was really successful and he gave them, I don't understand, he had two bad outings, but he was, a, he was a stalwart. And the team loved him and he was great in the locker room and they traded because he wasn't maybe going to start in the playoffs. What a stupid trade. They traded him for Harrison Bader, who is currently on the disabled list, who will probably be back in September, who is a decent outfielder and may help them later on. But in the meanwhile, they're losing, and they don't look good. And you always need pitching in the postseason, pitching, pitching, pitching. And to trade away a starter, yes, like you said, Jordan Montgomery hadn't done as well recently, but he's still a, a, a decent starter, and I just don't understand that. Moment. No, it was idiotic. It was idiotic. They were playing for how will we set up the starting rotation for the playoffs without worrying about how you're going to get to the playoffs and what happens if all does not go according to plan. It was an idiotic trade. Idiotic. And, you know, from what I 
can see. Equally idiotic was the Red Sox trading Christian Vasquez. Yeah, what was that about? Um, I, I think they may have thought they were going to get Sean Murphy, who's a good catcher from Oakland. They ended up getting Reese McGuire, who was okay. But they traded a guy who was the equivalent of a Jason Veritek for the team, somebody who was the heart and soul of the team, somebody who grew up with the team, always was with the team. You know, not, not, not a great catcher by any means, but a solid performer, somebody that you want, somebody that the fans like, somebody that was good in the clubhouse. Who's young. Who's relatively young, yes. And, and, and yet they kept J.D. Martinez, who has, you know, a limited future, who, you know, they could have easily gotten some decent prospects for. And it seems as if... Chaim Bloom, who turns out to be, unfortunately, probably the wrong person for the job for the Red Sox, uh, can't decide whether the Red Sox are getting rid of players or trying to compete for the postseason. Chaim Bloom, we should point out, as the general manager of the Red Sox, he had a fantastic record when he was with the uh, Tampa, Bay Tampa, Rays. Tampa Bay Rays. But he doesn't seem like he's made the transition. With Tampa Bay, he had to manage uh, his, his team based on the idea that we have limited resources and we're going to get undervalued players. That's not who the Red Sox are. But he still seems to be managing with that constraint in mind. And he's still trying to retain value you know, for the future and get undervalued players. That's not who the Red Sox are. And what he's ended up doing is... Um, first of all, not. I think the problems go back to when they didn't resign Mookie Betts, and maybe Mookie didn't want to resign. But if they had overwhelmed him with a great deal, I know for me, and yes, I'm more of a Mets fan than a Red Sox fan. The days when I stopped paying as much attention to the Red Sox started when Mookie left the team. He was an icon. He was exciting to watch. He drove that franchise, and I, I just don't think they're the same anymore. Why did they keep J.D. Martinez? J.D. Martinez has been a power hitter, a slugger for a long time. His power numbers are way down. His uh, uh, batting average is still good, over 300. Uh, but his best days are behind him. He was really a tra- someone who could be traded, a team who needs a hitter now to win the playoffs or to get into the playoffs or to w- take, a, take it deep into the uh, postseason. J.D. Martinez was a player you could have gotten many many prospects, good prospects. Well, I, I'll, I'll disagree with you on the last thing. I think everybody else knows he's limited at this point. I doubt they would have gotten many prospects for him. They would have gotten something for him, but I think Bloom probably felt he wasn't being overwhelmed with an offer, and it would have been a signal to the fan base that the team was giving up. giving up. So they didn't get a great offer, and they didn't get rid of him. Okay, but, you know, where are they now? They're pretty much nowhere now. And they, they went out and they got Eric Hosmer and they got Tommy Pham. These players are decent, but they're not going to turn this franchise into a winner. There's no way. Um, on the other hand, my Mets, now, they made some great acquisitions. And they looked at the time to be nothing special, but they went out and got Tyler Naquin. They went out and got Darren Ruff from the San Francisco Giants. They went out and got Daniel Vogelback, who seems to be becoming a folk hero for the team. And these players have great uh, platoon splits. So when you combine them, they're, one is good batting left and one is good batting right. And they've infused energy into the team. And then the team made the best acquisition, I would argue, even better than Juan Soto from San Diego. And that acquisition was getting Jacob DeGrom back onto the mound. And he looks just as good as he ever was. And if the Mets have DeGrom and Scherzer at their peak... Two of the best pitchers in baseball. Arguably the two best. um, I think they're... 
they're maybe a co-favorites with the juggernaut Dodgers. And by the way, the Padres did win the trade deadline by going out and getting not only Juan Soto, but also getting Josh Bell um, from Pittsburgh. And Fernando Tatis Jr. will be coming back. And yet they're losing games, and they're losing games to the Dodgers. Because even with those players, they're not as good as the Dodgers. Okay, I don't so, think they're as good as the So Mets. back up a second. Juan Soto, for our listeners saying, I don't know who these players are. I never heard these names. Juan Soto is a name that non-baseball fans should know about what happened with who is he and what happened. Juan Soto is the current and future superstar of the game. He is 23 years old, and his first few years have been close to as good as Ted Williams' first few years, just to give you a reference point. So at 23, he has already had superstar years. This year, he hasn't been as good, which means he's still very good, just not awesome. Um, and the Nationals offered him $440 million for 15 years, and he turned it down. I've Let's read, stop there for one second. They offered him how much? $440 million. $440 million to play baseball, and he did what? He turned it down, and he has said recently he wished that hadn't come out. Now, I understand where he's coming from, and I understand where those of us who feel like, how could he turn that down, are coming from. That's a... A heck of a lot of money, right? And why should he get? Don't more go than out that? on a limb here, Duke. You know, it's a heck of a lot of. It's four hundred and forty million dollars yes. for playing a game. Except that's probably about one hundred and fifty million less than he'll end up earning in fifteen years. Really? Yes, because to get a guy at age twenty-three and for him to sign away the rest of his career for what is less than what Max Scherzer, for instance, got. Granted, for three years, he got $40 million a year. Why shouldn't Juan Soto get $40 million? He should have signed for three or four or five years or signed a long-term contract with an opt-out after three or four or five and gotten paid that $40 million a year, which is really what the best players get. Because a player at age 23, that good, that's what the market bears. Right? So that's why he didn't sign for that amount of money. Is it a lot of money? Yes, it's a lot of money. Should players make that much money? No, I don't think they should either. Should corporate CEOs make that kind of money? I don't think they should either. Should baseball owners make hundreds no. of millions and become billionaires? No. Well, they were billionaires, and then they bought the They are the already billionaires, and they're making too much money, and they're ruining the game. Oh, well, there's an, there's an optimistic note from you, Duke. Okay, on that note, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about one of the greatest announcers of, in the history of sports has passed, and we have other things to talk about as well. We'll be back with the Duke, talking baseball with the Duke, right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts' way of saying we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families, and we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. We are talking random whites. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. This is from a company called La Pere, Gros Monsang. Gros, apparently, when you see it written, it looks like you're drinking something called Gros Monsang. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's Gros. In the past, has mostly been relegated to bulk wine or distilling grapes for brandy. Petit Monsang, which I think means like little guy, and Gros Monsang means big guy. It almost has like a dessert wine feel to it. It's susceptible to botrytis, so they do make sweet wines. This tastes like it almost might have that, which is like... 
It's essentially, they call it Noble yeah, Rock, it, which is my next yeah, band name. Don't grape. steal it. We, we, so mentioned, weird. we mentioned it was a brandy grape, and this wine does taste like a brandy. Yeah. Drink this before dinner. Maybe drink it after dinner. Because it's a brandy-ish kind of feel yeah, to it. This yeah, is a unique it's one. very different. 1899. It is organic grapes and certified organic. What's the name of this one again? La Perre. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street. One thing I like about working at ServiceNet is that in addition to being a manager, I can still be a clinician. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. For people working private practice who want to also still have a commitment to community mental health, working at ServiceNet gives them the opportunity to do both at the same time. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue talking baseball with the Duke. Duke Goldman, a su superstar of savor of the Society of American Baseball Research, an expert in the Negro Leagues, an author about baseball, a baseball historian. Duke, you said before the break that the owners are ruining the game. In short, how? Why? Well, forget why. How? Um, what they're doing is certainly not enough to make the game shorter. The other day, the Mets played a first game of a... Uh, morning-afternoon doubleheader that went three hours and 38 minutes. These games are endless. They haven't really addressed the issues of pitching. Their answer to too long a game is to put a man on second base in the 10th inning, when the problem is not extra inning games. The problem is nine-inning games. Nine-inning games are too long. They are going to finally have next, next season a pitch clock, which will help, but they also should be reducing the number of commercials in between innings. Uh, there's a lot of things they can do, and they're not doing enough. Um, then they have a problem, and that is that the umpires are doing a terrible job. And my view is it comes from the replay system because umpires now know on the bases that they can get it wrong and it'll be reversed. And I don't think they bear down the same way. And I think there is what some people call a halo effect. You'd think that wouldn't affect them behind the plate. After all, they're still goaling balls and strikes. But when you're generally not bearing down the same way, you may not do as good a job with that either, and there are umpires who are getting 15% of the calls wrong behind home plate. Yeah, and I saw the game on Saturday with the Yankees. First of all, the five, first five innings took three hours. It was 
endless. And then the umpire in a 3-2 count, bases loaded, got a ball that was six inches off the plate and called it a strike and changed the game. I mean, these are professional umpires. They're supposed to be the best of the best. And you were telling me during the break that some of them get something like 15% of the balls and strikes wrong. Does that mean we're going to have computers calling balls and strikes? I think that's coming. It has to come. You know, there, they, there's a website that does this estimation or, or what percentage they're getting right, and it is ranged from 85% to 99.4%. So that tells you how much of a difference in quality there is. Obviously, not many are down as low as 85, but they have to be above 95 to be decent. They shouldn't be getting more than one out of 20 of them wrong. And then again, what we see is some of them are egregiously wrong. Now, part of the problem is we're seeing how wrong it is. Now, every broadcast has these strike zones, so we can tell when they've gotten it far off. And that happened in the past, too. We just didn't know about it. But now we know about it, and they're going to have to do something. Are those those animations, those 3D strike zones that we see, are they accurate? Is that that a fair I've heard some people say there's an issue with depth perception. There's also an issue a little bit about different players have different strike zones based on how much they crouch and uh, how tall they are and how tall they are so i don't know if they're perfect but they're the best that we have and i think they're pretty good in other words they're better than the umpires themselves okay well spend one minute with us about this a, a, a batter crouches does the strike zone change a batter is a, absolutely an Aaron judge does the strike zone change and is it yes. supposed to yes it does. And I think it is supposed to. If you crouch, you're going to have a smaller strike zone because it is defined based on from the top of the shoulders to the top of the knees or something like that. Bottom, so, of, the, bottom of the shoulders. Bottom of the shoulders. Top yeah, of the bottom, knees. Yeah, yeah. Top of the shoulders for judge would be about six feet. So, But, uh, but Pete Rose zone. got so many walks because he crouched. You know, he had a very small strike zone. So a batter can make the strike zone smaller sure. by crouching? Yes, they can. Yeah, and you know that that means they have to adapt to that kind of stance, which may not be the best stance for you know optimally producing powerful hits, for example. So, you know, but they are allowed to do that. It's supposed to be their normal stance, and that's what the strike zone is supposed to be. So those computer graphics are supposed to change for the individual. You know, I'm not 100 percent sure about that. I think they're supposed to, but I don't know if they do. Yeah, it'd be weird to have a computer. You have to be changed for uh, I don't every know. every batter's crouch. That would that would be interesting. That would be interesting. We'll see how that works. Okay, let's talk about Vin Scully. Vin Scully was an all-time great. Um, I've heard it said by a number of people that um, in his game, which was broadcasting, there is no question. Nobody has a question that he was by far the best ever, right? That somebody I, I heard say, you know, rarely do you find anything. I would argue Mariano Rivera, for instance, is by far the best reliever ever. But is there any realm where you can say, you know, uh, Matisse was by far the best painter of all time? No. I, I think it's so debatable. And I think virtually everybody would say Vince Scully was the best baseball broadcaster ever and that he did 67 seasons with one team is just i mean this is a guy who started in 1950 he called bobby thompson's home run in 1951 and he finished at the end of the 2016 season announcing baseball and then on top of that he was a great guy which is universally said and believed. I heard Gary Cohen on the Mets broadcast talk about how he met Vince Scully. Cohen is the Mets um, play-by-play guy who started at quite a young age, and he met Scully in his late 20s, and he said Scully treated him like an equal from the minute Scully met Cohen. And that's how he was. He was gracious, he was kind, he was supportive, and he was just beloved. And he also knew 
so well when to let the crowd carry the story. Time and again, in some of those great moments that he called, he said nothing and let the crowd reaction carry the story. And that showed what a great announcer he was. So many other announcers, they just have to talk and talk and talk through the exciting moments. He did not do that. Other things that he did that made him a great baseball announcer? Um, he, he made baseball a pastime. He, he was talking about everything, talking about the environment, the atmosphere, the players themselves. He, the fact that he did the games by himself, he didn't have banter. He could carry the whole story, and he did. That's what made it, the, he was the kind of person that you wanted to listen to. He was a lyricist. His, the, the specific things he said, you'd think that he spent hours figuring them out because he could come up with, with you know, commentary on the spot. He said uh, after Hank Aaron, he famously called Aaron's 715th home run. And first he allowed the audience to cheer for a minute, and then he said, this is a great day in America when a black person can break a beloved record in the South and all of the fans cheer. And then he would leave those words and not interrupt them and spoil them with commentary. Correct. Which is what we're going to do. Duke Goldman, thank you so very much. We've been talking baseball with the Duke. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Downtown Sounds? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit BaconHumane.org. Hi, this is Tom from 4-H. What will the next 100 years look like for today's youth? According to the 4-H members of Hampshire counties, there are no limits. Youth supported by adult 4-H club leaders are being prepared to take on any role they can imagine. Astronaut, director, hockey player, surgeon. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP.